This podcast was recorded on Friday, April 13th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or Okay, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have an exciting guest, Jim Grant, founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Welcome, Jim. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. You know, I like to ask a lot of people when they share a name with their company, uh, was it always your dream to work at Grant's Interest Rate Observer, or was that just a coincidence that you uh, happened to stumble across that company? Yeah, well, um, I think that the name derives from my children, and they were kind enough to hire me back in 1983. Uh, some of them were not yet born, but there was a foresight involved. So, uh, yes, the name was very uh, – it's a happy coincidence. So clairvoyance has always been uh, one of your specialties, is that correct? Well, yes, you you have to have that in the financial journalism trades. It's no good just knowing about the present and the past. One must have a clear line of sight in the future. I think that's the best way to kick it off. Uh, we could close it with that because that, that's a great statement <laughs> there. But, um, you know, <laughs> but Jim, uh, you know, we, we've been followers of yours for, for many years and uh, always find your writings to be somewhat provocative and, and thought-provoking. And I, I wanted to really talk about what really got you into the, the financial media. I know you started out as a journalist. I've, I've read some of your background about being a Navy gunner. But what really what really interested you about the financial side of journalism? Well, when, when I got out of the Navy, I was, uh, I was 20 years old. It was 1967. And uh, I had six or eight months before college started. I, I had quit college after one semester. And uh, when the Navy came back, so it was time to resume. But what to do in that uh, six or eight months? So I opened the New York Times. At the time, one got a job through the New York Times and went down to Wall Street. And it was indeed on Wall Street and walked around and uh, applied for a job on what turned out to be a, a corporate bond trading desk at a member firm of the New York Stock Exchange. And those uh, that half a year was a very formative experience. I was I was making perhaps $100 a week or something. Everyone else in the, in the room was being paid by the year, and their salaries were about $100,000, which at the time was real money. In fact, let me say a kind word for $100,000. It's still a lot of money. As defaced as it has become through the exertions of our central bankers, it's, it's still a lot of money, even when you say it fast. <laughs> so I aspired to become one of the guys making $100,000 a year. And I went, went to college. I, my plan had been from early adolescence to be a French horn player, but I, I decided to, to, to not do that and went back and, uh, and majored in economics. And um, yeah, so and, and then so I, th- I thought, well, journalism is good, not for the money necessarily, but for the uh, joie de vivre and for the uh, the glory. That's what the that's what journalism offered. And um, I, my first job was in Baltimore Sun. Joy of life. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Spanish phrase or something, or maybe it's Hungarian. Anyway, I got a job on um, uh, the Baltimore Sun, which was a great coup because it was still regarded, uh, even though Mencken was long gone, as, as kind of the paper of Henry Louis Mencken. And um, 
I, you know, I began uh, covering as one did in those days, uh, uh, fires and uh, petty crimes and writing obituaries. And presently, uh, there was an opening on the financial desk, which I think had two or three people on it. And it was easily the lowest status department of the paper. So uh, I figured um, I would shine if only in relative terms. Besides that, I was known as uh, kind of the, the Bar- Bernard M. Baruch of uh, the Baltimore Sun because I had as many as six or seven months experience trading you know, as a clerk in a bond desk that qualified one for certainly the appearance of financial expertise. So that's how, that's how my uh, career in financial journalism started. And a couple of years later, I, I left Baltimore to go to Barron's. That was 1975, I think. Uh, so that was, yeah, so that's how it all started. Yeah, so you started writing there. What, what made you want to go out and um, really start your own kind of publication and be somewhat independent and provide other views out there? I wish I could say that I felt the calling to entrepreneurship. That would be uh, a nice thing to be able to say. What I felt mostly was aggravation at the internal politics of Barron. So it was nobody's fault, really. It was just a a clash of egos and you know how it works in college English departments. The lower the financial stakes, the more intense the personal disputes when they arise. So I I felt uncomfortable, uncomfortable is a weasel word. I felt as if I would rather be any place else than Barron's. So where to go? So I could have gone to uh, Forbes or Fortune and conformed to those house styles. The very good thing about Barron's then was that it was kind of a writer's paper that was both for good and ill for the readers, depending on how well the uh, the, uh, the staff was writing. Uh, but one had one's own voice at Barron's, and I figured I would uh, keep my voice and start a publication and become independently rich as opposed to working for the uh, the very well-heeled uh, proprietors of the Dow Jones Company. That was in 1983. So this year marks year 35 of my aspiring to overtake the Dow Jones Company. Now, I guess News Corp in revenues and earnings. Do you still remember the first piece? Oh, yes. I, I remember it vividly. Even then, we at Grants would have nothing to do with sensationalism. And the headline over the first or the front page had two stories. One was um, interest rates rise, which I thought was arose to a certain level of dignity. And the other one. Uh, announcing our presence uh, was, uh, was uh, ran out under the headline "Another Voice in the Choir." So we announced ourselves to the world, and, and my announcement, I guess, owed something to the spirit of the New Yorker in like 1925, wherever it started. And what I announced our intention to be was to produce uh, the best writing, the funniest cartoon. We have a page one drawing every every two weeks, and uh, to expose the worst and to praise the best in the investment world while covering all monetary and rate-related developments. All this in 12 pages, actually 11 pages because it was some advertising. So that was the announcement. And in that day, there was something called the Lotus 123 spreadsheet. It was one of the first digitized spreadsheets. And on this device, one could project unreasonable assumptions into the indefinite future. So if you began with assumptions just bullish enough, you could, and we did, uh, predict major tax problems of the happy kind within five or six years. It, it turned out the five and six years was indeed a formative span of time in the startup, but that was the turned out to be the length of time it took for me to make a salary. So the um, <laughs> my first experience with the analytical powers of uh, 
of the spreadsheet, I guess, is uh, rather made me a little cynical about what Wall Street itself was doing with spreadsheets and extrapolating corporate results. Well, it is uh, interesting you talk about modeling budgets. Uh, it makes me think about um, in the late 90s how uh, running budget surpluses here in the U.S. with the invention of the Internet and the accompanying tax receipts uh, got to where what well, we were supposed to pay off the entire federal deficit. But what was it, like 2010 or 2015? Uh, there'd be no need to borrow money anymore. What a difference um, the forecasting changes 19 years later. And so, um, you know, I, I've, I've read your comments and your uh, criticisms of the fiat currency. Let's try to extrapolate the experience we're on now. $1.3 trillion budget deficit, quantitative tightening. What do you think the, this looks like in the next few years uh, as we talk about the bond markets, um, the deficits, and just the setup that we have, given the large fiscal deficit of percentage of GDP. Well, you know, the, uh, the monetary and the fiscal stuff is, in fact, uh, intimately related, I think, except for the, uh, the facility with which the central bank can produce currency and, and uh, the things we call dollars. Except for that ease of production, uh, the fiscal side would be much more constrained. But as it is, you know, we have watched our central banks over the past 10 years uh, literally pull from thin air trillions of dollars of new central bank credit, which credit has helped to suppress interest rates. I'm not sure where they'd be in the absence of these great monetary experiments, but they certainly have been coincident with the all-time lows in interest rates. And I use that uh, term with scholarly precision. We can get around to that, but I know what I'm talking about here. Uh, you know, in this subject, uh, in this one narrow facet of this subject, I know what I'm talking about. But the interest rate question, the nature of money, that question, and the federal fiscal question are all kind of of a piece. And together, they have uh, landed us in a place we have never been before. And it's, uh, as we say in the trades of journalism, it's really good copy. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting, too, that we've had a transition uh, between the former Fed chair, Janet Yellen, to uh, Mr. Powell, Jerome Powell, who has uh, recently taken over. Uh, what is your impression so far of Mr. Powell and um, his ability to communicate uh, the policy and the direction that the, the Fed is heading for the near future? I think the clarity of his speech is, um, has startled and to a degree shaken up the fixed income world. People have been used since, uh, well, since uh, I guess the, Arthur Burns was an academic and uh, I guess G. William Miller, who uh, preceded Paul Volcker in the uh, 70s was a corporate businessman, and he spoke a, a kind of English. But for the most part, over the past couple of financial generations, the central bank has been led by a former college professor, and they have their own patois, and they, they speak in, to a degree in, in economic jargon. They try not to, but they do. And their intent and import is kind of, is, is all, it's called, kind of muffled. But here comes Jerry Powell, and he says that he'd like to normalize interest rates, and uh, maybe uh, the time has come for this. So people listen to this, and they recognize words and, and you know, and, and phrases and sentences, and, they, and uh, there's no more muffle, and they um, are a little bit shaken up. But I think that uh, apart from uh, this welcome kind of uh, sound of a native English speaker talking about things, apart from that, I think he is very much of the of the inside. Federal Reserve cast, you know, he is a believer in the efficacy of 
of quantitative easing and now quantitative tightening of things. Everything is going to be okay. He doesn't question the institution of fiat currencies. He doesn't question the, you know, the idea that the Fed ought to materialize this stuff um, as it sees fit. He doesn't uh, apparently doesn't uh, really think much about the, you know, the evolution of the nature of money. Nor apparently does he think about uh, too much about the distortions that unprecedented monetary policy has delivered into the financial markets. Maybe he knows more than he talks about. But he is, uh, apart from patterns of speech, he seems very much of a piece in his views with those of Janet Yellen and, and Ben S. Bernanke. Yeah, I think, well, the market did accept that as it was kind of a status quo, or at least the assumption has been to date, uh, that it was somewhat status quo in terms of policies. And it makes me think about, as we've been describing around here, the data dependency. This is something that the market really, really kind of thrived on for many years, that the Fed was going to be data dependent in order to judge monetary policy. And for so long under the Ben S. Bernanke regime, as well as the Janet, I, I apologize to Ms. Yellen, I don't know her middle initial, but Janet Yellen regime, where it was, you need the data to justify the rate hikes as they came through the system. And I feel like today what's happening is that we've actually changed that view of data dependency where it's that the Fed is going to move and continue to hike rates. They're going to continue to proceed with quantitative tightening until the data disappoints. So it's not a corroboration of the data set to rationalize the policy. I say that the data has to contradict what their assumptions are, at least miss in a significant manner to derail this policy. Uh, what is your thought on, on that kind of viewpoint? I think I think that is a, uh, a fair appraisal of what the Fed thinks it's about. I'm reminded uh, of a, what's now become kind of a cliche. It was certainly funny when he said it, but the uh, the great former heavyweight champion, uh, Mike Tyson, said maybe in the eve of a fight with Buster Douglas, he said, everyone's got a plan until he gets hit. And the Fed has a plan. And uh, I think Jerry Powell uh, wants the world to know the Fed is not going to be uh, spooked by a mere pullback in the stock market. And when the stock market did pull back in February, it was as much as 10% at the lows intraday. Uh, there was some uh, kind of uh, big talk from the ranks of the Federal Reserve presidents. Maybe it was Bill Dudley at New York Fed who kind of said, you know, 10% pullback, yeah, it's, it's nothing. Well, we'll see. It was in 2016, I think, when uh, – the stock market suffered rather a greater than 10% drawdown in the month of January 2016. Janet Yellen had in December just instituted uh, the first uh, one quarter of 1% hike in the federal funds rate that was meant to be the first of many on the path to normalization. Then comes the little squall in January. Uh, that uh, looks a little scary because markets, as we know, men are meant to go up all the time, including the weekends. That's certainly cryptocurrency that can go up the weekends too. But when the markets did not, and in fact pulled back, and when the junk bond market uh, seemed to crack, and when everything was 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 kind of looking very very iffy, uh, Janet Yellen began to speculate on the possible need for negative nominal policy interest rates. This was. Less than a month, I think, after the first rate hike, that was the that was the degree of timorousness in that Federal Reserve about uh, the program of rate hikes. And I think uh, Chairman Powell wants us all to believe that the Fed is much more has a square jaw now, is determined, and uh, is was not going to be 
uh, thrown off course by uh, the perturbations of Wall Street. Well, that's what they say. But I, I think that speaks uh, apart from the perhaps uh, uh, laudable uh, you know, clarity of purpose, perhaps laudable. I think that speaks also to the Fed's unwillingness to confront the almost certain dislocations that will result from these 10 years of fake interest rates. Uh, fake because, because they, uh, they have, um, well, had to establish that they're fake. They certainly are real, that you can look at them on a screen and there the blinking lights tell you what the rates are. But, um, I will, uh, in the interest of time to make my case, I will simply point to the fact that in the first week of July 2016, when uh, our mutual friend, your colleague Jeffrey Gunlack, I think correctly identified that as a major, major low in rates at that time, the uh, uh, I think there was something like $11 trillion worth of sovereign securities denominated in, uh, in negative nominal yields. These were not uh, short-dated treasury bills. They were notes and bonds, principally notes. I think at the time, the Swiss yield curve was negative all the way out to the 30. So as you mentioned, yeah, it's not just yeah. a short-term financing blip. This is people right. guaranteeing that if they held these securities till maturity, they would guarantee to lose their money. Not all of their right, money, was, but they're guaranteed yeah. to take a loss. This was a, a mania of the first order, I think. And, uh, and you know, the... the you, uh, the, the still living co-author of uh, the Sydney Homer book, uh, uh, Dick Silla. Homer and Silla are the co-authors. Dick is still around. Uh, the history of interest rates, no doubt it, it is by your bedside as it is by mine. Uh, 3,000 years B.C. to the present. That's the book. And so I called up Dick and I said, Dick, uh, I've read many, but every page of your magnificent narrative. Tell me, has there ever before in the 5,000-year annals of interest rates been a juncture in which uh, substantial volumes of fixed income securities were denominated at prices to yield less than nothing. And he said, no. So I, you know, and so interest rates in the, in the Great Depression were higher than these prevailing in July of 2016. Credit spreads were certainly wider. Everything about July 2016, to me at least, uh, was the clinch the case that the central bankers of the world had created a, a kind of a hall of mirrors. And these most consequential prices in capitalism, interest rates, were now deformed and were sending out exactly the wrong signals to all of us who pay attention, who organize our affairs according to interest rate, which, you know, of course, uh, measure credit risk. They discount future cash flows and define investment hurdle rates. All these essential functions of interest rates had now been distorted through these unprecedented actions of the central bankers. So about a half an hour ago, I was winding up to make the point that the Federal Reserve seems not to admit even the possibility of a titanic misallocation of credit on account of these rates. It doesn't even, it never comes up. And I say this is the, the height or I guess the depth of disingenuousness. They can't be ignorant of it. They choose not to mention it. But the, all of us who are in the business of buying low and selling high and trying to conserve savings and, uh, and put a little aside for the future, all of us have to be cognizant of the fact that these rates have been a phantom. Right. Well, you, you mentioned that, too, and the facade of, of the system. But I, I recall the phrase zero lower bound. 
being very prevalent, especially around the financial crisis, that we're bound by zero in interest rates. And with this new policy of targeting negative overnight lending rates, obviously we broke that. And we were, we joke around here at Double Line that, you know, the reason we have this range of interest rates is that the Fed can never admit to zero. You know, if zero to 25, because we can't have zero as interest rate because that's an infinite kind of multiple on your cash flow. And um, so I guess the, the joke would be is next time, you know, when they want to go to negative rates, if they ever actually do pursue that policy, which I do think Mr. Bernanke has uh, as a Brookings Institute fellow now being champion that idea that maybe uh, if they actually do that, it'd be the policies negative 300 basis points to positive 25 basis points. That's our target. Uh, we just have to be at the lower end of the range. Um, right, yeah. So I, I'm hopeful we, we don't have to ever get to that idea. I, I, you know, you talked about the depths of mania. And madness. Uh, I think I recall that I think there was a company, I believe it was Nestle, that actually did a note or a bond offering where it actually had a negative coupon. And I think when it came out of issue, it traded at or above par, uh, which is quite amazing. <laughs> if you think about the implications of that, you go to the debt market to borrow, you have to pay them for the privilege for them to, to give them money, and they become a better credit overnight. Right. They have, yeah, they have right, no yeah. liability on that. They just get new cash flow. So I, I do think that that was part of uh, a mania uh, that was taking place. But I think what happens is people get into this relative value aspect and they say, well, do I want to be in this versus that? Or they're forced to buy things. I mean, have we set up the system in a manner that forces irresponsible behavior? Well, it's, I, I think it's not irresponsible at the level of the financial professional who has to do something in the world that in which he or she lives. I mean, what I, I make a living by um, proposing that we all have a better world, which is fine for me, but everyone else has got to live in, you know, in, uh, in New York City or L.A. or uh, Wichita. I am in the uh, utopia proposing department, but uh, the rest of us are must make do with what is. But the world that is is a very funny place. We at Grants can take, uh, I think, uh, all the credit that uh, is uh, – is there to be taken for discovering um, a junk bond yield in Europe, denominated in euros, of course, a Telecom Italia. About eight or ten weeks ago, there was a couple of um, medium maturity notes of this kind of double B plus rated, which is to say speculative grade rated, a telecommunications outfit. And these are junk bonds, naturally, by definition. And the First figure in the yield was a zero. It was 0.8 something or 0.9 something. So if you go back and think about what the world looked like, not in the prehistoric age, but in 1984, as recently as 84, when 30 year treasuries were priced to deliver in May of 84, I think for not many minutes during the lows, but for at least a couple, a couple of minutes, uh, deliver yield to, to, uh, a 25-year call of 14%. That was a Treasury security. And so fast forward uh, those uh, uh, 36 years or so, and and we have lived to see we have lived to see a junk bond, corporate junk bond, beginning to a yield beginning with number zero. It's I mean if you, if yeah, if you amazing. eat right, uh, get plenty of exercise, and get uh, enough sleep, you will live long enough to see anything in this business, which, which, by the way, is what makes it so fascinating and so humbling. Yeah, well, I guess that, that brings me to another thing you alluded to, and um, the, the one financial market, if we do call it that, a financial market, open on the weekend is the cryptocurrency. 
Uh, do you think there's any uh, correlation, uh, maybe it's just contemporaneous or a spurious correlation that I'm observing, between the rise of the cryptocurrency um, and negative interest rate policy, where you you talk about depositing your money in a bank, they're just going to scrape some off every single day, uh, versus trying to believe in something outside of the financial system. I know you you have kind of a long term bullish view on gold, or at least I believe that from reading some of your your recent writings. But do you think that that there's some kind of correlation there between this negative policy, the fact that yes, you know, oh yeah, they want to I, digitize I, I, currencies, yeah. Well, I think I think I think it's a kind of a, a Silicon Valley cry for help. I think it's a I think it's the at one level it's the expression of a, a deep unease with the institution of monetary modern monetary economics and its application in central banking. I think it's there. I think. Uh, to perhaps a greater degree, what we have seen in the levitation of these, uh, of these, uh, uh, whatever they are, coins or tokens. The cryptos, yeah. Cryptos. What we have seen is, uh, is a great momentum chase. I'm not sure if the marginal buyer of, uh, Bitcoin or of the 1600 Bitcoin successors or wannabe successors, I'm not sure how many of them have deep misgivings about the nature of monetary modern monetary policy. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's in a way kind of funny that um, the crypto revolution has erupted at a time when just on the, on the numbers, the, the central bankers aren't doing badly. I mean, the measured rate of unemployment in this country certainly is, is, is very low, and, and um, the measured rate of inflation is, uh, is low. And so, you know, you could, the central bankers might kind of declare victory what they – declare instead is their impatience with a rate of inflation that's, that's too low. By the way, this gets to data dependency. They claim that there is a significant difference between 1.7% and 2.1%. Now, what is the error in measuring prices? Now, what's, the, what's the margin of error? Well, zero. In we know that. Yeah, we know yeah, it's zero. Right. That's what the Fed will tell you, right? That's, that's why they this 40 basis point gap is huge. Correct. Right? Yeah, I forgot, I forgot for a second it was zero. But let's say it's more than zero. So anyway, I, I, I think that there, that perhaps the cover story now for these cryptos is that it's a, it's a spontaneous, uh, crowdsourced, uh, protest against, uh, the institutionalization of a 2% depreciation per annum on your money. I think that, I think that was a rather, would be to many of the speculators a rather recondite thought. I think what they're after is the main chance and the hope that, that Bitcoin goes from 6,800 uh, back to 20,000, then on to 200,000, where I'm told they'll reach parity with gold bullion. So, I mean, who knows? It was up, I think, it was up, up 16% just in the past, uh, what, 15 minutes or something as we speak. Yeah, I think since you started talking about it, there's been a new bid for it. Have you ever considered of using the uh, blockchain technology to distribute grants interest rate observer? We had a, our, our spring, uh, spring conference on uh, Tuesday, and uh, one of the really uh, arresting and engaging speakers is a West Coast fellow named Kai Stinchcomb. Kai Stinchcomb. And he gave a talk on uh, the, the, the title of which was something like, Bitcoin is a crappy technology that nine years in is still searching for a, a use. And he spent 30 minutes exploding or attempting to explode, and I think that he, in my opinion, he succeeded. All of the kind of uh, the, the widely shared assumption that while Bitcoin may be 
something or maybe not something. And the blockchain, you see, is it will change everything. It is the future. So, uh, Kais, I'm not going to do justice to his arguments, but I will do justice, I hope, to two things uh, that will either charm you or, well, both will, will, I think, either amuse or charm you. First of all, Kai's self-description. He's about, he looks to be about 16 years old. I think he's actually probably 30 years old, but if you're 72, he looks younger. Anyway, Kai describes himself, quote, uh, whatever the opposite of a futurist is, which I think is lovely. And secondly, he says, apropos of the, of the intended, or the, you know, the fundamental thought of Bitcoin, which is that it is a, a system uh, in which you don't have to trust anyone. He calls that uh, a Somalia on purpose. So these phrases in this self-description, I hope, will entice you to go on the web and look for his uh, his two essays. He's published a second one on Bitcoin. Just judge for yourself and, and see whether it doesn't make some sense. So, uh, no, we are not distributing on the blockchain, by the way, nor are many of the uh, of the blockchain proponents actually using blockchain. It turns out uh, that if you use blockchain, you relinquish your airline miles. So nobody wants to do that. Being in the financial business, we, uh, we all travel a lot, so we relish those airline miles. So uh, that may be a little prohibitive for me for entering the blockchain. Yeah, it's very, very expensive, <laughs> very expensive medium of exchange. Right. Well, I think it's one of those places where they just they upfront tell you, look, it's a, it's a 2% charge uh, to trade the stuff. Um, and then you can buy a fund that has another man, layer management fees. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. But, um, uh, you know, in, in the world of fee compression, I think uh, trading the cryptocurrency, I, I think, as you mentioned, it's the, the thought of getting rich uh, versus necessarily the financial system itself. But so uh, it's like a, another kind of uh, mania. I won't call it madness, but another mania that's taking place in the market. Well, we will, um, so, we will, we will know more about the madness in about, uh, in a few years, I, I hope. Uh, but, uh, for the time being, it is, uh, indeed. Well, when, you know, when there was no volatility in 2016, we somewhat prematurely at Grants had called, uh, not virtue safely, mind you, but, uh, observing, we had called Donald Trump the avatar of tail risks after he was elected, just after he was elected. And it turns out, wouldn't you know it? For the next 12 or 13 months, uh, he was the avatar of tranquility. And in that period of tranquility, it was the cryptos that offered you uh, the putter. Not that you guys, mind you, were speculators of putters, but it offered the putters of the world um, uh, a lot of vol and a lot of action. So uh, that was that was then. Now it turns. Now it seems we have vol everywhere, which is a good thing for uh, Wall Street and a good thing for, uh, for Grants, actually. Yeah, it, it actually, it's no longer this kind of risk on, risk off, uh, everything moves in tandem in concert. Uh, it feels like it is more of a macro, or at least a micro driven part of, uh, of the cycle. If only, I mean, what we do here at Grants is try to analyze things. You know, we, we have documents and we have, uh, you know, we do, uh, some, a lot of corporate security analysis and it, when it, when everything goes up or everything goes down together, it, it, uh, it uh, seems like a rather futile pastime, but uh, it is uh, a very well-repaying one um, in times of discernment, and maybe we're entering that period or re-entering it. Right. Well, hopefully that's where we all earn our keep and uh, are able to to bring uh, provocative thought out. Uh, what, one more question I wanted to talk about on this, because you you'd mentioned that you thought that the crypto investors weren't the ones worried about the government stealing 1.7 or 2.1% of your wealth away. For inflation, uh, what do you what do you think is the root cause of the lack of inflation in the system, or what? Did, why are the bankers missing this? That uh, the inability to generate or stoke this level of inflation that they so desire. 
Well, the 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 pure monetary answer is that the uh, uh, the euros and the yen and the dollars created through central bank action in the past ten years have mainly been uh, sent to um, go into a, a kind of a deep sleep in the in, in the liability side of the uh, of the central bank. So the central banks go out and they buy bonds, they buy ETFs, they buy whatever, and uh, the proceeds of of uh, those purchases don't as yet have not seeped out into the real world to finance the acquisition of services and goods and perhaps to bid up the prices, nominal prices of those things, but rather have come back to uh, increase the level of uh, what we call bank reserves, which are simply deposits in the central bank in question. So that's that's one answer. I think a more fundamental answer to it is that it is an Amazonian world. It's a world of... Uh, of the harvesting of the efficiencies of the truly miraculous breakthroughs in productive processes of the past 20 or 30 years. And to be sure, some of this uh, has eluded the counters of productivity growth. Um, but maybe in the absence of the central bank exertions, uh, prices would actually be uh, declining. Now, prices did decline, for example, in the final quarter of the 19th century, but basically 1875 to 1900. Uh, real wages did not. Real wages, therefore, uh, wages, nominal wages did not decline. Real wages rose, and uh, it was a period of, uh, of you know, of, uh, of turbulence, but uh, on the whole, of, of great uh, prosperity for working people. So the Fed has set its face against falling prices. Never mind that people seem to seek those out on the weekends as if they really like them. The Fed has said we must not have deflation because in 1931, nothing went right. That's approximately the Fed's response. So to create measured inflation of the 2% level, the Fed has created these massive reserves. And, um, you know, in so doing, it has instituted an inflation in the things that uh, Wall Street likes. And uh, uh, it's on Wall Street, this is called a bull market. Otherwise, it might be called an asset inflation. But uh, that's where the inflation has been manifested is uh, is on Wall Street rather than Main Street. I, I like that you use that phrase that's asset inflation. And uh, we were having a, a discussion internally yesterday about uh, how you can change the narrative of an asset or the change the narrative of a, of a statistic by using the word growth versus inflation. Right. So um, if you want to be pro proactive on wages, you call it wage growth. Um, if you're a company, you talk about, oh, we have this wage inflation. Um, so it's such a it, it, and it connotes this negative idea. I mean, it's the exact same measurement. And it's it's, it depends it's on who it depends on which 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 side of the pay window you're on. That's, that's exactly correct. And so uh, I like the idea that you, you use this asset inflation because, you know, uh, maybe that's what we're not measuring. We're measuring price inflation of these baskets of goods that the government deduces. Uh, but there has been inflation in other areas. So uh, on the last day, too, just on the economic side, uh, do you think uh, I'm just thinking about the same equations here? Um, it's just the precipitous decline over the last you know, 15 to 20 years in money velocity. And so I'm thinking about what you were saying with the Fed's balance sheet, all these reserves sitting there. Is that kind of the, the difference here is that we've created this money supply uh, out there, but we haven't gotten the velocity behind it because it's just sitting there as a very, uh, I won't call it a non-productive, but at least a very low productive asset. 
Yeah, I think that's so. And I think that another element, an important element in the case of the missing inflation is the case of the all too prevalent debt. And um, debt, other things being the same, is kind of a force for deflation. It, it means that uh, you are you are encumbered. It means that you must uh, uh, spend a certain amount of your of your income in in uh, keeping the creditors at bay. And um, it has been a force uh, over the years, over the over the financial generations, for lower prices rather than higher prices. So that figures both in the measured decline in velocity of money and in the lack of oomph in the nominal economy, it seems to me. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point because, um, you know, when analyzing the inflation, when you create the debt, when you've gotten borrowed the money, that's where you can get the inflation. It's not um, through having the debt that causes the inflationary virus. It's when the debt is indeed created. Uh, because well, it's, it's also the servicing of it. There's a, yeah, the, the, the servicing of it is a, can be a deflationary pro- For example, if you're a company uh, and you are levered, uh, as, they, as people like to measure this stuff now, they've measured it to debt to EBITDA, and the EBITDA meaning interest before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it's kind of a cash flow measure, generously defined cash flow measure. So debt over EBITDA is the relevant measure, the popular measure now. And if that is five, six, or seven and up to one, that means that uh, probably the, the company has to hustle uh, to stay solvent, or at least to stay comfortably solvent. So what do you do if you have to hustle? Well, you produce more, right? You produce more, and if necessary, you produce more at a lower price. So debt drives production was a phrase of yesteryear. And insofar as more production, other things being the same, insofar as more production uh, means uh, lower prices, debt driving production is a force itself for lower prices. So the encumbering of society uh, made possible by a uniquely low, in history, uniquely low interest rates has in a funny kind of way come full circle to torment the Fed. So the Fed wants more inflation, which, by the way, let us bookmark that one. The stewards of the dollar, the protectors of the integrity of the currency, want us to have less of it. Well, that, thank you, uh, Janet. Thank you, Bannon. Thank you. Now, Jerry. Okay, that's one. So they want us to have a faster depreciating dollar. Uh, and yet they have instituted the forces, many of the forces, that are now paradoxically through money creation uh, and, and credit formation there, they have uh, – themselves been responsible to a degree for the lack of the inflation they seem to want. They say they want. So, uh, so there. So, you know, the, you mentioned before, you asked before, uh, is Jay Powell uh, a different creature? Is he, what's, what is he about? Well, um, he is about the same. And I, I, when I read the, the stories, nothing against him, but you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, apparently a wonderful human being and he is an accomplished central banker. But, he believes what they believe, and he uh, professes what they profess. And when he was appointed, uh, there was more than one story saying, ah, it's, they, they had set out to have a diverse chairman, as if one person could be diverse. I guess maybe Donald Trump's diverse. Anyway, they wanted a diverse chairman, a diverse chairman. And they, of course, they, yeah, what they wanted was somebody who, who looked different, who looked differently than the preceding ones, right? But they didn't talk about an alternative intellectual framework. They didn't talk about somebody who thinks differently or who has learned different things or who read, reads different books. It was the, the, the dullard's approach to diversity, meaning 
the only the most cosmetic kind. It drives you nuts. Uh, that'll be the end of that sermon. Well, man. You I mean, proceed with the other questions. You have. Yeah, I, I think I, I have to comment there because, um, you know, I, I've heard stories. Again, I don't have the uh, I wasn't there to back those up, but how you have to look the part to be part of this administration, too. And I think Jay Powell fits that uh, that role. Right. He looks the part. <laughs> Which is very, it appears to be very important to the president. Or well, so he, 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 in, in fairness to, uh, to Jay Powell, he looks the part of a distinguished man, right? And there, there, but I, I guess I was thinking, um, specifically in this diversity thing, I, I, I addressed it to Jay Powell, the, the, the new president of the, of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, is the guy who would run the, uh, San Francisco Fed. I'm, I'm forgetting his name now. You'll help me. Uh, John right. Williams. John Williams. John Williams, of course, yeah. So John Williams was the guy who was not diverse. <laughs> and what they didn't say is he was really not diverse in what counts, which is how you think about the world and and uh, and and how you uh, mean to uh, to go about uh, making the world a better place in monetary terms. So my opinion is that in thinking what others have thought and professing what others have professed, he is doing us no good on the diversity front. And nor would a black person or an Asian person, if he or she said and thought the same things, it have landed us in what I take to be a fix, uh, a pot of trouble. However, the trouble yeah. is yet uh, more and more latent and manifest in the eyes of people on Wall Street because it's still one heck of a bull market and many things. Right. So you're talking about the latency versus the manifestation. Uh, let me finish up here with one question because I need to get Sam on here to, to play uh, his favorite part of the show. But when thinking about quantitative tightening, Jay Powell, how far do we get to the tightening process? Uh, the Fed is of the mindset, and I think Mr. Powell did the same, of saying, you know, we're going to be able to continue the unwind of the balance sheet. It will not be disruptive. Even though it's very helpful to yeah, well, this, this is, this is one of the yeah, this is one of the things that, that this is one of the things that uh, a thoughtful person will scream about because um, uh, they're dogmatizing. I guess maybe they're putting up a bold front, a happy face, but they're dogmatizing about an unprecedented prospective action. Right? There had never before been QE on these on in this scale. Uh, never before been. Uh, the proposed tempo and level of QT on the scale, and yet they're telling us it's not going to matter. I mean, they, they were happy to have us believe the QE mattered. You know, ben S. Bernanke, comma, Ph.D. himself in a Washington Post essay told us that it was going to be great for the stock market, and that was one prediction that was accurate. Yes, Ben, it was great for the stock market. And now it's supposed to be not bad for the stock market because, because well, they don't say why exactly, but they, so, um, yeah, so, uh, because the hubris, it's because of the hubris and we are almighty, right? It's that, or is it, or is it simply they're just playing the con game, the confidence game in, I think it's both. I, I, long yeah. I think, I think it's both. I think there are 600 or 700 doctors of economics under the, uh, and the, under the Federal Reserve's roof, and uh, they have all been schooled, I think mostly all, been schooled in the, in the same doctrines, the same methods, the same assumptions. And um, I think they are quite uh, intellectually smug bunch. What they lack, you see, is diversity. Yeah. Right. So, um, right. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's uh, I think we'll end with the quote there from, it's attributed to uh, Albert Einstein, right, that, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. 
So with that, uh, I, I have to thank you, Jim, for your time today. But before I let you go, uh, I'm going to bring Sam back up here. I think we had some mic difficulties for him or that or he just fell asleep during uh, our, our very provocative discussion and uh, uh, introduce you to his favorite part of the show. Great. Thanks a lot. And uh, Jim, for this next portion called Sherman Says, the rules of the game are I will say a term. And from you, I would uh, alternate between you and Jeff Sherman. I would uh, expect a one-word type of top-of-mind response from each. And with that, I'll start off with Jeff Sherman with the first one, zombie companies. Prevalent. And going over to Jim, central bankers. Many. Data scraping. Back to Jeff Sherman. Everywhere. And Jim, petrodollar. Too many. Unfunded liabilities. Problematic. Cambridge Analytica. Front page. Universal income. Scary. Hobbies. Typing. You, you can't ask for a plural word and ask for a one word response. <laughs> <Yeah>. Hobby. Hobby. <laughs> Minutian. Scary. <laughs> Cudlow. Larry. I mean, the amount of treasury issues. I'm going with the amount of treasury <laughs> issues. They're not the person. Bow ties. Back to Jeff Sherman. Sexy. <laughs> and the final one for Jim. I like the bow tie, Jim. I like it. <laughs> and for Jim, skinny neckties. Fat. <laughs> All right, Jim. Well, thanks a lot for playing along with us there. Uh, found the, uh, the discussion today very entertaining. Um, so you lived up to the hype that you, you were giving us on there. And I think that was more than 15 minutes of content that you thought you had. So thanks again for joining us today. Well, Sam and Jeff, thank you. Delightful. Thank you again. Thanks again. And for those of you listening to, remember you can find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Google play. Uh, you can subscribe, uh, on those various services. And if you want to leave us feedback, we have an email address, one word, Sherman show, S H E R M A N S H O W at doubleline.com. And we appreciate the feedback. Thanks again. And thanks again to my guest, Jim Grant. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respective direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.